There's often a lot of pain that comes with being God's servant. And sometimes that pain comes in the form of direct and overt persecution. Our, our minds can't help but be drawn to the apostles and the way that they died horrific deaths. And not just the apostles, but the early church fathers, those who wrote various books of the Bible, all of which suffered tremendous and difficult final days. Based on the reports of the early church, Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Mark was dragged through the streets. Luke was hanged in an olive tree. John was boiled in oil. It's not to mention the many and various ways that our brothers and sisters this day are suffering around the world simply because they follow Jesus. The Bible's not silent about the various forms of rejection that God's servants face. On Wednesday night here, we've been looking at the book of Jeremiah, and we've been kind of tracing how the prophet Jeremiah's message unfolds to the nation around him. And to say that he was received unfavorably would be generous. His message was unpersuasive. He's imprisoned by the authorities. They don't want to hear from him. He's ridiculed. He's the only one in the nation giving that report. Daniel is thrown into a lion's den and thrown into a furnace. Moses leads a group of people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, killing Pharaoh's men as the Red Sea collapses behind him, leads them through the wilderness as God provides for them along the way, and the whole time he hears nothing but griping. And they're continually complaining about his leadership. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that when we open up the book of 1 Samuel, throughout, what do we find but that the good guys in the text are in the midst of tremendous suffering, agony. It's not just persecution for their faith either. It's just overt suffering. The book opens with Hannah in a tumultuous marriage. She's ridiculed by her rival, who is also married to her husband. And the person, the, her rival, is ridiculing her because of her barrenness, which she can't control, and God brought to her. She's exhausted by it. She's frustrated to the point where she doesn't even eat. And in her anguish and her tears, she cries out, begging God for a child. Well, then we find provision. God opens her womb and gives her a child. And then we turn the story to Samuel, that child that God gave to Hannah. He's selected by God to serve as judge over Israel. And in the process of transitioning to Samuel, he tells Eli, who is currently the priest, I'm done with you for your wickedness. And he transitions to speaking through Samuel. But in spite of all of that, in spite of what God is doing through Samuel, the nation of Israel comes to reject Samuel. He has done nothing but good by them. He has done everything that he was told by God. He's never been accused of any wrongdoing. He's led them and been faithful to them from the very beginning. And they reject him as leader. I want you to really think about what's weighing on Samuel at that moment, where he realizes that in spite of the way that he's led them and how careful he's been to follow God's word, he has been rejected by the nation and he's to put a king on the throne instead. In fact, we know it's weighing on Samuel because God comes to him and says, don't worry about it. It's not you they've rejected, it's me. So then we see it's even God who's facing rejection in this book. It seems as though throughout the book of Samuel, all the righteous people face rejection. All of them go through tremendous difficulty. So when David is called, it should come as no surprise 
that the road ahead for him to become king over Israel is not so easy. He's going to experience it with much difficulty, much hardship. He's considered least by his own father. His own dad doesn't even invite him to see if he might be the king. His own dad doesn't even let him come. You need to stay and, and tend the sheep. Somebody's got to do it. And after all, we're, we're, you're not going to be king. I mean, come on, let's be honest. He's ridiculed by his brothers when he goes out to the field of battle. You're just here to see a skirmish. I know it's in your heart. He's called into service and he has to serve a paranoid schizophrenic king who tries to pin him to the wall with a spear and then spend the rest of his life chasing him to try to kill him. And not only that, but all the while he's being accused of betrayal. In our passage this morning, Saul is honing in on David. And he's going to get as close as he has ever come before to actually doing the deed, to killing him. So you see, David's life is anything but easy. We have 75 psalms that attest to the range of emotion that is brought to the life of this king, David. But you see, as difficult as his life is at this moment in the story, this passage that we're looking at this morning is actually meant to encourage the follower of God. As desperate as it seems, and in fact, this passage is really kind of a thriller, because it gets down to the very end and there's, it's almost like your heart is racing trying to figure out whether or not Saul is actually going to be able to do the deed. I'm being told my mic is muted. Hang on just a second. How about now? Is it still muted? We good? Okay, I'm going to start over back at the beginning. <laughs> just kidding. Y'all can hear that? Were you tracking with me so far? I saw yeses, so you're not lying to me. Okay, good. All right. So we have 75 psalms that range in the emotion, show the difficulty of the life of the king, but as difficult as his life is at this moment, it's meant to encourage you. This is an encouraging story. It's a thriller. gets down to the very end where our hearts are racing, trying to figure out if Saul is actually going to be able to capture David and be able to, to seize him. And yet the whole time, this is actually a story of encouragement. See, in the first half of the passage, the reason it encourages us is because David receives protection. From God. David receives God's protection. Remember that in the last passage, Saul has called his counsel together. Just last chapter, last week, we talked about God. God has, or Saul has brought his, his closest associates around, and he, has, he is frustrated as he's talking with him, as he has his council meeting, and he's frustrated because every single one of them, he says, has betrayed him. Every single one has betrayed him. And they're all gathered together, and we see this, this little snitch in the crowd named Doeg the Edomite. And remember Doeg the Edomite volunteered information where he said, hey, I know all these priests of Nob. I witnessed all of them giving aid to David by feeding him and giving him a sword. And so Saul, remember, called all the priests of Nob together. And he turned to Doeg the Edomite and he said, I want you to put them to death because they've aided and abetted my own enemy. And so Doeg kills all the priests who are also the descendants of Eli's line. He kills them by the sword, just like he's prophesied he would. But one priest named Abiathar escapes. And you can imagine Abiathar gathering all of his stuff, getting everything that he can, packing up his belongings, and getting out of Dodge as fast as he possibly can. He escapes and he flees to David, who we find out is at Calah. Now we knew he went to David, but we're told in this passage that we find out it was the city of Calah that he escapes to. And we learn that David is hiding out there near Calah. Abiathar flees to him. But the reason that piece of information is important is because what we get to in verse 6. Look down with me in verse 6. It says, When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. 
Now, on first read, especially to a Western audience who has no idea what an ephod is, that might not make sense or amount to a hill of beans to you. You might just want to read past that. But it's really important that you understand that piece of information. See, an ephod is a square breastplate that the high priest wears or that the priest wears. And inset in that breastplate is are 12 stones, four across, three high, three up and down, three rows. And so these stones are set in there, and each stone represents the 12 tribes of Israel. But most importantly for David's purpose, the ephod also comes with two additional stones. One is black and one is white. And essentially what happens is they take those black and white stones called Urim and Thummim, and they take those two stones, they basically hide them, they ask a yes or no question of God, they pull out the stone, one color represents yes, and one color represents no. Pretty weird, right? Yeah. So it's, it's strange, and to, especially to us, it seems like an odd thing. When I was in grade school, we had this thing called a magic eight ball. Anybody remember this? It's part of a bygone era, kids. This is, hopefully we'll never come back again. But This eight ball was basically a little plastic eight ball. And you'd hold it up with the eight on top, and you'd ask a yes or no question, and you'd give it a good shake, you know? And then you'd turn it over, and there'd be a window on the backside and would float up an answer to your yes or no question. And then sometimes it would say, Outlook hazy, ask again later. All right? But this, it, it sounds really difficult or, or, or weird to us in an era where we know what a magic eight ball is to see that God's people essentially ask these yes or no questions of God and then reach in and pull out a color that represents either yes or no. But if we go back to the Old Testament, what you'll remember is that the same group of people has essentially a box that they, they consider holy where God's presence dwells called the Ark of the Covenant. And that box sits inside a tabernacle. And in this tabernacle is the precise location where the priest would go before the Ark of the Covenant, they would go before God, and they would make sacrifice on behalf of the people. And atonement for their sins would be had there before the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant... Now make no mistake, did not contain God. That wasn't the only place where God was. But the way to think about the Ark of the Covenant is that when the Bible says heaven is God's throne and the earth is His footstool, the top of the Ark of the Covenant is considered the precise location where His feet rest. So the priest, in going before the Ark of the Covenant, is really coming before God, having access to God, and they're receiving answers, essentially. As he makes sacrifice, we can see whether or not that sacrifice is received, and things like that. In, in other words, it's a place, a special location, that God has set apart on earth for mankind to meet with God. You understand? That's what the Ark of the Covenant represents. But you see, what the ephod was is a place that enabled the priest to communicate with God when he wasn't near the ark. So now communication or being able to convene with God could happen away from the ark. So if you, if you think of it in modern terms, if the ark is like the landline, the ephod kind of represents the mobile phone, right? He's able to, away from everything actually convene with God. It's obviously not meant for sacrifice. That's not what the ephod's purpose is, but direct communication with God. So if we're putting this in modern terms to help us really kind of understand what David is going through at this moment, just think about this for a second. David is a spy in a foreign land. And the king of that land has put out an all-points bulletin and he said, look, Anybody that sees this guy, shoot him on spot. He puts his picture up in every post office, in every village. So everybody knows what he looks like. Everybody knows who he is. And along the way, some people are loyal to him. Some people understand what's happening. 
Some people are not, but David doesn't really have any way of knowing whether or not these people are going to be loyal to him or whether they're not going to be loyal to him. He has no idea which one's which. If he leaves the country, he has no hope of ever getting evacuated out by his home country. So he's relegated to the outskirts of the country. He's relegated to depend on people to provide for him. He's relegated to live in the woods and just eat whatever he can find hunting squirrels or whatever he's got. He depends on people's generosity. And so out in the middle of nowhere, one day comes running up to him a soldier that he recognized. Out of breath. And he comes up to him with a satellite phone in his hand. And on the line is direct communication with the president. Tell me, how do you feel at that moment? Can you understand what David is going through right now? Where he's on the run, and his terror is on all sides, and now all of a sudden, he has this blessing from the Lord that's been given to him. So now David is able to ask, this explains all the verses that happened previously, How David is able to ask of God, should I go help the citizens of Keilah? And God gives him a yes. Well, he says, my men are afraid that the Philistines are going to defeat us. Are you going to give the Philistines into our hands? And God gives him again a yes. And the blessing that comes is that because of his victory, what happens? He's able to take all of the Philistine livestock. Now, So he goes from depending on other people to provide for him food to now he has a whole herd of livestock. Talk about a blessing. I mean, in in seemingly like one day, things have all turned around for David. He's got livestock. He's got direct communication with the Lord. This is an upgrade, all right, from his current situation. But this is where things get a little dicey. They go in and they save the city of Keilah. But what they realize is... Keilah is one way in and one way out. It's pinned in on all sides by gates, by fences. And so David is pinned in because of the fortification of the city. But look at verse 7. Now it was told to Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given, into my, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering the town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war. To, uh, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said he will come down. He gave him a yes. Then God said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. He gave him a yes again. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped Keilah, he gave up the expedition. So Saul was bringing this massive group of people down to pin David in because we've got him now. This one little guy, David. David is also, knows, also sees the town. He looks around him and he knows we're in a vulnerable position because I'm pinned in on all sides. This town is closed. There's only one way in and one way out. So he calls on David, uh, on, on God with the ephod in his hand. He asks him yes or no questions. And God tells him, you got to get out of there. And so he leaves. Now, here we're, how are we supposed to understand in this passage what the bringing of the ephod really is? How are we supposed to understand how David is able to escape and stay just one step ahead of Saul the entire time? How are we supposed to understand and look at how David escapes just in the nick of time every time? Well, if you present this story before someone else, potentially the answer might come, just the average guy on the street, the answer might come, David might be the luckiest person I've ever seen. He is able to stay one step ahead and man just escape by the skin of his teeth. But the author of 1 Samuel won't let you get away with that. In fact, he tells us the answer in verse 14. 
And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. The answer, the lens, the pair of glasses that the author of 1 Samuel wants you to look through in order to interpret all the things that are happening to David is that this is an example of God's protection. The ephod finds him. The priest comes to him. David is able to save the town of Calah, rescue them from the hands of the Philistines. But he's also able to escape just in the nick of time before Saul can get down there to kill him. How do I understand these things? The author of 1 Samuel says, this is God protecting him. Are these just random circumstances? No, this is God that's protecting him. This is God's protection. It's His advanced warning. This just being out of reach. All of these things you're tempted to look at in this passage or, or any other, anywhere else in Scripture and say, Whoo, David was just a lucky one. But this is God's protection. But in addition to receiving protection from God, David also receives God's encouragement. It's not just protection that he receives from God. It's also his encouragement. He's out in the wilderness of Ziph as he runs from Saul. And who should appear to him but his best friend, Jonathan, who is also the son of the king. Look at what Jonathan says to him in verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. So, so first, it was the ephod coming to David out in the wilderness which is the Lord's protection of him. It's God giving him direction, giving him the ability to have some measure of foresight as to what Saul is going to do. It's God's version of protecting him in the wilderness. But now, as he's out in the wilderness, the king's son comes to him for encouragement. It says he comes literally to strengthen, that is to encourage his hand in God. You can imagine how dangerous this is for Jonathan. To throw caution to the wind and go out to find his friend. And you can imagine the irony that's presented here in the text that Jonathan is able to go right to him while Saul seems to spend his days trying to find him and can't seem to. Yet Jonathan is able to go right to him. So he visits him and is able to find him. And when he gets there, He encourages him and reminds him of God's goodness, of God's protection. He strengthens his hand in God, meaning persevere, encouraging him to keep going, to put his head down and continue in what he's doing. You can imagine what kind of balm in the desert that would be to someone who's on the run and sees everyone around him hating him. Everyone around him wanting him dead. And yet here is his best friend in all the world saying, persevere. Be encouraged. It's often not stated what's going on in the mind of David in the book of 1 Samuel. You don't really know. But you turn to the book of Psalms and all of that is fixed. You realize exactly what David is going through. We've got 75 Psalms that are written by David. And you see many places throughout the Psalms where David is going through the most discouraging times of his life. And you get things like this in Psalm 13, 1-4. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. I have no way of knowing 
when some of these psalms were written, during what specific times in David's life, especially because he goes through so many periods of desperation throughout his life. But nevertheless, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jonathan just merely sat there in his palace or wherever he was and thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go see David. I'm going to go see him and just encourage him. In fact, I think this godly form of encouragement comes at just the right time for David. If I'm supposed to see David's avoidance of Saul through the lens of God's protection of him, then how am I supposed to see the encouragement that comes to David when he most needs it? Other than that is also God's direction. Surely this is God's way of coming to David and God through Jonathan saying, keep going. Persevere. You're going to be on the throne. You're still my king. I know this is hard, but you have to keep going. So the Ziphites in whose land he's currently living, also turn him over to Saul. They go to Saul and they tell him where David is hiding. Now, what's the likelihood that these lands, both Calah and Ziph, have heard what Saul did to the priests of Nob just however long ago? That they found out that the priests of Nob were aiding and abetting David Unbeknownst to them, by the way, it wasn't necessarily their fault. David had a lot to do with that. And yet, they were aiding and abetting David. And what does Saul do to them? But he kills them. And then, not only that, Abiathar escapes. They gave David food. They gave him Goliath's sword. Doeg, the Edomite, kills everyone in the village. How, what do you think the likelihood is that that word has now spread to all the people? And Calah has heard about it. And Ziph has heard about it. And now they're in a place where they say, Listen, if we aid and abed David, Saul is going to put us to death. I think the odds are very high that they don't want to assist David in any way. So basically, he has turned the entire nation into paranoid tattletales. They're watching David everywhere he goes and turning him in. But what will escape your notice if you're not paying attention to this passage, both Calah and Ziph, is that both of these lands are in the territory of Judah. Now, the reason that that's important is because David is from Judah. For us, that might not seem that meaningful, but you have to understand that Israel is, is a divided nation at this point. They're certainly by no means united under one central king in Saul. They are very much divided, and tribal loyalty is at an all-time high, which is why in the previous chapter, you see Saul surrounded by his council. And who is that council made up of but Benjaminites? It's all people of his own clan and tribe. It's not people across all of Israel. See, the sadness in this story and the real trial for David is that the people that are turning him in are, are the people that are part of his own family. They're people in his own tribe. People of his own kinsmen are rejecting him as a ruler over them in favor of Saul. If for no other reason than they fear Saul is going to put them to death. They can't look beyond their own nose and see their own life as so worth preserving that they have to turn over their own kinsmen to a Benjaminite to kill him. It's high treason. See, the criteria for them is not that David is a man after God's own heart. That doesn't matter to them. It's not that he's the anointed one. He's the one chosen by God to be king. That also does not matter to them. The criteria for their loyalty is Saul has the power of the sword and he will kill me. So I must do this even if it's wrong. So you see, David's rejection is taken to a whole new level when even amongst his extended family, there is no support, even in Judah. 
But understand that the kind of rejection that the people of Judah give to God's king is actually typical of humanity as a whole. The kind of rejection that David is facing, that God's king is facing, is typical of humanity as a whole. Ever since death became a reality, ever since the fall, our default gear is to preserve our own physical lives and our own station at all cost. Look out for number one. Look out for numero uno. Look out for me above all costs. And because of that, our temptation, our natural desire, is to exchange long-term benefit for what will keep our bellies full now. Further than that, by default, mankind doesn't want anything to do with God stepping in and ruling over them. It's not just about God's king. It's about God as king at all. Remember, that God is the one that comes to Samuel earlier on in the book and says, don't worry about it. It's not you they've rejected. It's me. See, the, the default position of Israel in this place is the same place we are. Our default position is to reject God as king over us at all. So you have to understand that what Judah is doing here in turning her king over to Saul is what we all do when God inserts himself into our lives and attempts to rule over us. How often do we take his word and go, I know that's what it says, but yeah, I don't really want to do that. See, this is a story about protection that David receives from God, but it's also a story about the rejection that is given by David's own people. Rejection of God Himself by turning the king that God has selected over to His enemy to be killed. His own people do not want to receive God's king. You understand that what David is exposing here in this scene, Jesus actually came to solve. Remember, Jesus is the great, 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 30 times over grandson of David. Like his grandfather David, Jesus is also God's king. And he also comes into a world who is his own people and his own people do not receive him. In fact, John's gospel tells us in verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The kind of rejection that David is facing here, the New Testament authors pick up on, and they help us to understand that this is typical of the King that God has chosen to save his people. So while David is, is going to save Israel in many ways, his importance in the Old Testament is that God is going to establish through David a kingly line where he will bring about his forever king in Jesus, the one who will never abdicate the throne. But look closely at the passage in John that I just read. Leave it up on the screen behind me if it's not. Look closely at this passage, how Jesus' kingdom is really going to solve the problem that we see exposed in this passage this morning. Like David, he's also rejected. It says his own did not receive him. However, there are people, he says, who did receive him, even we'll say who will receive him, who will believe in his name and who have believed in his name. He says these are no longer subject to that same fleshly desire to reject God's rule. Why? Because of verse 13, they're not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they are born of God. 
In other words, what Jesus is coming to accomplish here is this and solve is this problem that we find in this text. That by nature, we want to reject God's King from rule over us. With every fiber of our being, we don't want God to rule as King in our lives or really have a say. Our desire is to reject His rule. And Jesus comes and experiences to the fullest what David is experiencing here in part. He is completely rejected by His people to the point where He is crucified. But in His death and resurrection... He is creating for Himself a people who instead of having to just merely receive Him as King, are actually enabled to receive Him as King by the Spirit that God has placed inside them. They're born not of the will of man, not of blood, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit of the living God. So He places, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, He places His own Spirit within us so that now our desire is flipped to actually wanting God to rule over us, to now becoming His own children, desiring to worship Christ. So sitting in your pew this morning, you're faced with no less of a decision than the one given to the people of Judah. Here is God's King before you in Jesus. Here is what He offers you. On the one hand, eternal life under His rule and authority. On the other hand, eternal rejection from His kingdom. He says eternal life can be yours. And those born of the Spirit of God turn to Him in submission through repentance of sin. Trusting that His atonement was enough to pay for our sin. It requires repentance of sin. Not only confessing your unbelief and your rejection of Him as Lord, like the people of Judah we see in this passage here in front of us, but also expressing your desire to run from your sin and follow Him and submit to His rule and His reign. But as you sit there, considering the options that are in front of you, you may also have a different feeling. One of rejection. Like the people of of Kalah, you're tempted probably right now, some of you, to reject God's King who has offered to save you eternally. Just as David comes into the city of Kalah and saves them from the hands of the Philistines, they then turn in spite and are going to turn him over if David doesn't leave. But why? Why would you do that? Is it because you think That you haven't sinned? Surely not. Is it because you think that He can't save you? Maybe you've done too much. Maybe you've run too far into sin. You have no idea all the things that I've done. Friend, I assure you that the only requirement for God's salvation is that you need it. It's understanding you need it. And once you understand you need it, you are in the same boat as the rest of us. We're not gathering here on Sunday morning because we're perfect or because we've got it all figured out. We're not gathering here on Sunday because, hey, look at us, the ones that have it put together. What are you doing, sinner? That's not why we're here. We're here because every one of us have been saved by grace. And we're honestly trying to figure out why. What we've seen is that because of His mercy and grace, He reached down to us for no reason of anything that we've ever done. And yet here I sit inside the kingdom of Christ only because He chose to save me. That's it. But all the while I recognize I fall short at every turn. So don't sit there in your pew thinking, well, you know, I I know that I need salvation, but you just don't understand all the things that I've done. No, see, the grace of God reaches you even in the deepest point of despair and says to you, I know everything that you've done. And the offer of salvation is still yours. 
Repent and turn in faith. Or perhaps you sit there rejecting His salvation because like the people of Ziph, you like the way your life is going right now. And now you just want to preserve it. But friend, do you realize that you're entrusting yourself to a brutal enemy? Like the people of Ziph turning themselves over to Saul and saying, hey, we're gonna, we, we pick you, here's David over here in the wilderness. You need to understand that your life is but a vapor. And he who would want to save his life will lose it. And one day you'll be on your deathbed and the doctors themselves won't be able to save you. Or maybe you won't even have that much notice. You realize that thing in your chest that keeps beating is a ticking time bomb? And none of us know when the clock runs out? One day it just stops. And the point is, one moment you're alive and the next you're not. And you don't have control over when that happens. So what happens then? The call in this passage is to surrender your life to the only one who can give you eternal life in the age to come. But in our passage, the very end here, Ziph comes to report where David is hiding among them. But Saul wants a more precise location. I want his GPS coordinates because this guy, he says in verse 22, it's told to me that he's very cunning. He's a slippery bar of soap. Can't catch him. And as we've, be, we've seen before, to describe David as cunning or quick or tricky or even lucky is not an apt description of why he's able to evade Saul. It's not because of, because of what he is, but because of whose he is. That's the reason he's able to escape. Saul figures he, maybe he just hasn't employed the right strategy yet, so give me a more precise location. Well, eventually they track him down, and we're building toward the climax of this episode. Saul is hot on his heels. Hearts are beating hard. It's a foot race to the end. David is on one side of the mountain. Saul is on the other side of the mountain. David is scrambling to get away. Saul is just about to reach out and grab David when wouldn't you know, as luck would have it, Verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up to the, from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Make no mistake about it. God uses those wicked Philistines once again as a means of saving his king. Now, it's easy to see that happen. But what you might miss is where David ends up in this town called En Gedi, or this place called En Gedi. And what you need to understand about it is it's an oasis in the middle of the desert. See, we just read it in En Gedi, you don't know much about it. But it stands out like a sore thumb because it's surrounded by dirt and rock. And in the middle of all of that dirt and rock is this. Look at the picture behind me. I took this picture when I was in Israel. This is in Gedi, in the middle of the desert. So David is fleeing from Saul, running all around arid and arid wilderness. And right down by the Dead Sea, he finds this as a place of refuge. See, not only, and you can see the next picture too, is a picture of all the caves that provide a convenient form of hiding for David while he's there. Not only does, David, does God spare David's life and provide him protection, but he actually encourages and refreshes him. So in the midst of his rejection... He gives him respite with his friend Jonathan, who strengthens him and encourages him. And his rock of escape becomes something of a refreshing oasis in the middle of the desert. Brothers and sisters, life is not only, um, David's life is not only a foreshadowing of what Jesus will go through, but it's actually typical of any who will follow after him. The Christian has the promise of the Lord's protection. But what we have to understand in, in this promise of God's protection is that His protection doesn't mean success. It doesn't mean healing. It doesn't mean promotion. It doesn't mean money. His protection means that anything and everything that He does is for your eternal good. 
What you have to understand is in this life there will be trouble. And actually, God promises us that that will happen. And it might be persecution. It might be a whole host of other trials and tribulations that come for you. And that's common to everybody's experience. Not just people that are Christians. That comes to people that are from the world as well. But what the Christian has as a promise of God's protection is that through it all, every single one of these things is actually for your good. That He provides the kind of protection that will lead you to eternal life, not away from eternal life. In other words, for the Christian, He uses poverty to turn His children to prayerful dependence instead of to jealousy. He uses wealth to turn His children to generosity instead of greed. He uses hardship to turn His children to increase the bonds of support in a church instead of a division of bitterness. See, His protection of you is an eternal protection. What the promise of God is giving to you is that in the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, He is not only there, He is intending it. God is bringing these highs and bringing these lows to David. And in the process, He is doing it for David's own good, whether David realizes that or not. Now, admittedly, we always want God's protection to be the promotion, to be the pay raise. Not to be the firing, but to be the hiring. We want it to be the healing from cancer, not the cancer. The cancer is attacking me, but God's protection of me will be my healing. And some people will even preach that from the pulpit. God's protection of me, God's provision for me, is the child, not the miscarriage, they say. But we have to remember that what this passage is telling us is that the same God that's king over the stars also guides the steps. The same God that's God over the new deal is God over the ordeal, in other words. The same God that rules over the heavens also rules all the individual movements of the heart. The same God that comforts the soul also brings a storm. Brothers and sisters, our present circumstances will rise and fall. One minute you're on the top of the mountain and the next minute you're at the bottom of the sea. What you have to see in this passage is that David is being brought to his lowest point and he is skimming the top of the grave and he feels it. And he knows that it's there. But in the midst of all of that, and maybe he doesn't even recognize it at the time, what the ephod is or what Jonathan is, or what Engedi represents to him. Maybe he doesn't see that at the moment. Maybe he's blinded by the trial that's in front of him and the rejection that he's facing from his own people. But there's no doubt in my mind that one day he got past all of that and he looked back on it and he saw all of these things as he skims the top of the grave that God was doing along the way to protect him, to guide him, to care for him, and to give him encouragement in the midst of trial. What he's teaching us along the way is that we've got to trust him. That's the purpose of the trial. Is that in the midst of it, we learn to trust him. And we learn that in the end, he's actually good. And what he has in store for me is my good. And that even that trial is for my good. That that trial is actually building me up. That trial is causing me to rely on Him. And the protection that He's providing for me is that what He's giving to me in the trial is a dependence on Him that I otherwise wouldn't have. So in the end, I'm not tempted to stray from His side because I know what He's done for me in the desert. So I can trust Him on the mountaintop as well. As I said, there's no way we know some of the Psalms, where they come from. And sometimes it's given to us the circumstance in David's life, and sometimes it's not. And Psalm 23 is one of those where we don't really know 
what circumstance that, tr- that psalm is born out of. But I think when we look at this point in David's life, you can certainly see all of the imagery. Imagine David running in the desert from Saul, who's about to kill him. Imagine his thirst as he's parched from the the weather and from the heat and from the arid climate. He gets away from Saul narrowly and he finds in Gedi that picture of the waterfall coming down that's now called David's water. Imagine him writing this now, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, presumably, we're not upside down on a cross facing crucifixion or walking before the guillotine like Paul or facing some of the persecution that came to us in the early centuries of the church, maybe. But trial comes to every single servant of the Lord. The question is, what do we do in the midst of that trial? Where do we turn? Do we understand that the God who's God of the mountaintop is also the God of the valley? That just as He's there with us when times are great, that He's there with us in the midst of the storm as well. The question is, can we trust Him? Do you believe that He's good? For His children, He promises that He's always good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for Your Word. And I don't know the the hearts and minds of, of every person in this room, or any person in this room, I don't know all the circumstances that are represented here. But every single one of us have either gone through a trial, are in a trial, or about to go through a trial. So Father, we pray that this message resonate. Not my words. Your words in 1 Samuel 23 and in Psalm 23. They would ring true in our ears, that we would tuck them away in our heart, and that your Spirit would bring them to our mind at any time we need them. That you lead us beside still waters. That you work for our good, that you love us, that you care for us, that you do everything for our provision and our good and your glory. We pray that that would always be our chorus. In Jesus' name, amen.